Welcome to this quarter two AHR investment webinar with WMP Fund Managers LGT. Joining me today from LGT is Rohit Alawali, Head of International Investment Solutions, and Sanjay Risingani, Chief Investment Officer. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, and Sanjay, if we can maybe start by getting your thoughts on, on what's happened over the last three months and what investors should be looking out for in the months ahead. Uh, thanks, Ian, and a, and a formal hello to all, all, all our listeners. Yes, the last three months, um, arguably, uh, markets and data have been very, very resilient. I mean, you may recall, Ian, last time we had this conversation, we were, we were talking about the uh, health of the banking industry, specifically in the States, when a number of regional banks, um, you know, collapsed. And, and arguably, you know, we, we should not be surprised. We've just been through, uh, you know, one of the fastest rate rises in history. So it's, 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 it's only right that we're going to see casualties along the way. And it started off with, with some of the banks, uh, banks collapsing. Uh, but despite that, we've seen markets hold up reasonably well. Um, we've seen uh, data continuing to be very, very resilient. I mean, the labor market continues to be quite strong. Uh, the underlying services data that we continue to see, uh, albeit weakening, is also quite strong. Uh, but manufacturing is one area where weaknesses are apparently appearing. Uh, but then if you look at the housing data out of the U.S., we started seeing some green shoots appearing. So, you know, some pundits out there believe that uh, where the worst is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is behind us. But against that backdrop, I mean, one thing that hasn't really relented are, are, are pricing pressures, uh, at least in Europe. You know, what we've seen in Europe is a is a continuation of, of that stickiness of, of, of inflation uh, to the extent that the ECB and the, the, the Bank of England uh, both have been quite uh, hawkish in their in their rhetoric. You know, they've raised rates. I mean, uh, a lot of our, our listeners will be aware that at least in the UK, we had a 50 basis point uh, rate hike last week. Uh, which was which was you know arguably above what the market was expecting just a couple of weeks ago, and all that is on the back of some very strong inflation data. Uh, U.S. is one area that uh, that we are beginning to see signs that pricing pressures are easing, um, and and arguably you know they were always going to be the first uh, to, to 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 see a sort of declining inflationary pressure because they're very much in control uh, of their economy. I mean they have their own. Uh, energy, they have their own um, control of semiconductors, they have a strong dollar. So, so all in all, you know, controlling inflation in that part of the world is, is, is a lot easier. You raise rates and demand will come off. But the labor market, I think, is still one area that, uh, that at least the Fed will be homing in on and focusing on and, and thinking about, well, the, 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 we're, we're getting, it's still way, way too strong. Um, coming back here to, 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 to Europe, uh, despite a, a sort of a strong labor market and certain things beginning to weaken, uh, pricing pressures are not abating. And, and that's primarily because we are hostage to overseas uh, forces here. You know, the energy that we get is imported. A lot of the goods that we use here in Europe are, 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 are imported. Um, so pricing pressures are still very much there. And and arguably, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and 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 looking at at why we're not seeing uh, some of these prices come off, it, a lot has to do with government policy during during COVID. You know, the fact that pretty much everyone in the developed world was awash with cash. Uh, what we've seen over the last three, four, five, six, eight months as rates have been going up is that cash is being depleted, but not down to levels that are that are that are that are, that are, that are, that are reducing uh, demand. 
But against that backdrop, we've seen markets, uh, like I said, behave well, at least the equity markets. Uh, the bond markets undoubtedly have, have been under pressure. We've seen more volatility in the bond market than we have uh, the equity market. Uh, but the equity market's been driven primarily by, by the S&P 500 uh, in the US, and the S&P 500 is, 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 is up quite strongly, uh, mainly on the back of six or seven stocks. So we've seen a very, very narrow rally over the last uh, a quarter, and a lot of those stocks sort of are associated with with AI. Uh, the markets, uh, this this sort of love affair with with artificial intelligence related stocks. Uh, we had results out of Nvidia and some of the other other companies talking about doubling their revenues over the next uh, 12, 18 months, and that's exciting the market. You know, as an area of growth, and it could well be that you know it is AI that ultimately brings inflation down, increases efficiency. So the market's got got a bit excited and arguably a little bit overextended. And and isn't it funny? It's contrary to what everybody had predicted. If you go back three six months, you know everybody talked about the one area you don't want to be involved is in is the, is, the, is the Nasdaq. You know that's of course been the star performer. They were talking about continuing to focus on on on, on commodities and energy, and they've arguably had a bit of a of a, of a of a tougher period. Some might even argue, you know, stocks associated with that are are, are looking are looking quite cheap. Um, but looking forward, as you as you as you um, asked about Ian, I mean, you know, it's all about interest rates and the trajectory there. The Fed, as we know, um, paused or skipped the last uh, rate hike. They're basically saying that. Uh, they're going to, you know, pause to see how the recent rate rises impact in the market, how is affecting data. Uh, markets telling us that we might see, you know, two potential rate rises uh, in the U.S. But one thing's for sure that the last quarter has taught us, and that is that um, we're not going to see a rate cut this year. You know, barring any uh, major sort of a calamity or crisis highly unlikely that we're going to see that fed pivot that uh, a lot of the market was hanging its uh, its uh, its hat on and and that's one of the reasons why the bond market's been so uh, so tough but you know some some may argue that it's now beginning to show good value and i talked about this the last time we spoke in natural cash flow you can lock into yields between 5 and 7% uh, with with very very you know high quality quality bonds out there um so you know in the uk uh, and Europe, I think rates will continue to rise. I mean, they're talking about at least another two rate rises in both these areas. Uh, U.S., there is a little bit of a question mark. We may be very, very close to the uh, uh, to the top. And then, of course, you've got uh, you've got Asia, and you know, last quarter again, Japan has been the star performer. Uh, the fact that they've maintained their uh, yield control policy uh, have, has kept a lid on, on on rates. You know, underlying growth has been a, a a lot stronger. The weakness of the yen. Is, is is of course helping Japan. So a lot of ticks in a lot of boxes there. Uh, Japan's performed quite uh, quite strongly. Uh, the worrying bit, of course, is the rest of Asia has has been struggling a little bit. And one could argue a lot of that struggle is because you know history tells us that when you have a strong dollar uh, out there, Asian Asian equities tend to struggle a little bit more. Of course, we've also seen China not demonstrating the growth. Uh, that we had hoped once they they ditched their uh, zero COVID policy. Uh, they had a very strong start to the year, but more recently, um, markets hoping and praying that, uh, you know, the, the the Chinese regime come out with some sort of stimulus package to propel growth. And that might yet happen. So it could well be a second half story, you know, a third, a third quarter story. So, so in the main, it's sort of a a, a tough quarter, Ian, for bonds. Uh, but for equities, it was probably a lot better than many had predicted. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Sanjay. And I think, you know, you mentioned there about interest rate policy. And I think, you know, we were just speaking off air earlier, um, coming into this year, 
a lot of investors uh, were nervous around a potential recession. And, you know, certainly looking throughout history, the, the, the pace of interest rate rises would suggest that they, they were perhaps right to be fearful. Why do you think it perhaps hasn't materialized as of yet? Um, and I guess really for investors, how do they navigate that with, with, with that still looming in the background? Sure, yeah, that's that. That is, I think you know, that's one of the discussions that arguably every every investment committee across the board is uh, is having. I mean, there are a couple of things to point here. One is that we love using a few words called long and variable lags, and and that basically is the fact that when rates start rising, it is it is anywhere between twelve and thirty six months that it starts impacting you and I, right? So the fact that we've got mortgages that we've locked into, you know, a lot of people haven't really felt the brunt of these rate rises. Uh, yes, we're paying more for our bread now, but arguably people can people can uh, handle that increase in prices. It's when your fixed mortgage bill goes up, you know, uh, a few fold, that's when the pain really starts hitting. And here, at least in the UK, I think between 100 and 150,000 households have to remortgage in the next couple of months. So it'll be interesting to see how we handle that. So these are the long and variable lags that I just mentioned. It does take a little bit of time for that to filter through. And then, of course, the slowdown that's associated with that. So we do think that's coming. Now, whether it turns out to be a hard landing or soft landing, you know, time will time will tell. And 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 whilst, you know, most cycles in the past that the sort of impact of higher rates is felt, you know, between six and 18 months. This time it's a little bit longer. It might be till the back end of 2024. We might not feel the impact of this. And that's because of government policy during COVID, at least in the developed world. You and I both know, Ian, that governments went uh, above and beyond in ensuring that households did not suffer the pain. Uh, they got paid whilst they were sitting at home. We saw savings rates more than double. And, and that's given households a lot of cushion that as with prices have been going up, even though we've seen savings rates fall, they haven't fallen to levels that would worry you and I. They're probably back to their long-term norms. It's here on when we start seeing savings rates fall that it's going to start impacting people's thought processes and how they go out there and spend. And the final bit, I think, is to do with property. You know, property has been quite resilient up until now, and it's, it's one of those... Um, arguably emotional uh, sentiment things whereby if we know that our property is not falling in value, we're quite comfortable in going out there spending. You know, we saw that during COVID. Uh, so from from that perspective, you know, there are there are a few factors that have that have made the data made you and I thinking a lot more resilient. But that's not to say that we're not going to see a slowdown. You know, I think the true test will be over the next six, eight months when we have to remortgage and savings rates start falling a little bit further. And that's what policymakers have to look into and arguably maneuver. OK, Rohit, so turning to uh, the WMP funds and uh, some of the questions we've had from investors, Sanjay mentioned there the, the impacts of rising interest rates and how that impacts the economy and, and the time that may take. Uh, I guess from the other side, from an investor's point of view, for the first time in a, in a very long time, uh, savers and investors alike now have the opportunity to perhaps take advantage of some of these higher fixed interest rates on deposits. Um, so with that in mind, how are we able to take advantage of this uh, within the WMP funds? Yeah, no, uh, that, that, that's a very good question. And that's something exactly uh, what we've been doing for a better part of six to six to eight months now. Um, probably more emphasis uh, recently. I think the standard trade 
um, to take advantage of the yields on offer within the U.S. is to buy your six and one year kind of treasury notes, given their offering between you know what five and five point two percent. However, we went one step a bit one step further than that, and um, we started to buy uh, credit uh, individual corporate debt um, with one to two maybe three year maturity, staggering it out, primarily focusing between one and two years. And so with respect to the WMP funds, you know, we're able to go in and buy a, an A-rated issuer, you know, just most recently what we did is we bought an A-rated issuer of a JP Morgan uh, fixed income note that matures in 2025, and it's offering a 6% yield to maturity, right? So for the WMP funds and the underlying investors, you know, rather than buy the treasury, you know, which is giving you five for one year, for example, we're able to take advantage of uh, the, the, the opportunity that is prevalent to us uh, or available to us and actually buy corporate debt uh, lock in at a rate of 6% north of 6% for two years, right? So that's what we've been doing across the fund. That's been our main focus. So wherever we've seen additional flows coming in, our target has been uh, four to five individual bonds that we have between one and three year maturity where they're offering north of 6%. So not only are we getting the yield from the treasury, we're getting additional compensation from high quality credit uh, issuers uh, for an additional spread. And that, that makes perfect sense to us. So effectively, long story short, you're getting paid six, six, north of 6% to effectively sit on your hands for, for a year to two years and do nothing um, and get paid pretty well to do it. That's how we've been taking advantage of that. Six percent per annum, right, Ro? It's uh, yes, yeah. So it's a combination of capital and income, right? So you uh, yield to maturity. So you're getting a coupon uplift, uh, but and then you're getting a capital gain as well on top of that. So it just makes it makes per perfect logical sense on why why you wouldn't take advantage of this, right? And you know there there are opportunities to you know you could go and buy five, six, seven year bonds. But coming back to what Sanjay said in terms of uh, the long and variable lags, you know, there are there is evidence based on the work we've done in preparation for a quarterly outlook is that the credit stresses are gradually beginning to emerge. You know, interest expenses gone up, coverage ratios are moderating, margins are deteriorating. So for us, it doesn't really make sense to go longer duration in credit exposure, even though we get paid, paid marginally a bit more for it just because the possibility that if there is a recession, when it comes, we can buy these things at a cheaper price. Uh, but more importantly, you know, you come in every day now, um, I look at my Bloomberg and I've, I've watched a 10 year guilt and the 10 year bond, you know, you're moving between five and 10 basis points every day. So there's a lot of volatility associated with taking that longer duration position. So you have to factor that into your risk reward equation when making these decisions. So, We'd rather be on the front end and wait and uh, wait, wait until we get a better entry point to extend duration out as well. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned there, Robert, about the, the credit risk. Um, and, you know, with, with savers, investors, perhaps exploring, um, you know, what's available to them, how important is that for them? I, I think absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a paramount importance. Um, you know, a few years ago, it was an extremely important question because if you think about it, a few years ago, we were at zero yields. 
And literally every investor out there was trying to scramble to get any income, which mm -hmm. meant that they were going so far down the quality curve to high yield, triple C's, single B's, taking a lot of risk to get that sort of income yield. I and mean, you were probably getting maybe five, 6%, right? Um, emerging market debt, similar story. You know, you're taking some risky exposure to get your five or 6% income. Today, it's a very different story. And, and I would say at this stage of the cycle where we are today, uh, I don't think on balance, you know, high investment grade and high yield bonds, they are trading at about fair value at the moment. Okay, which is fine. Um, I think you'll be able to get a better opportunity to, 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 to get them at a bigger discount. So I think the question, Ian, is not necessarily um, about the credit risk per se. I think the income is there, right? So if you look at high yield bonds today, they're trading about nine. Um, I think if you look at IG and aggregate, they're trading about, let's say, five, five maybe 5%, 6% on your mm -hmm. aggregate bond indices. So the, the, the yield is there. I think the key question is, it's the duration side. Okay, that comes back to what I was just saying, because what you don't want to do at this stage, knowing what we know about the macro backdrop, knowing when I look at the credit fundamentals every quarter and I'm seeing deterioration and knowing the fact that every time there's a recession, credit spreads in IG widen out to 200 to 250 over, that 150 today, high yield tends to widen out to 800, maybe even 1200 basis points, they're about 450 today. Right. So what I would tell our investors is, yes, there's yield. Don't chase the duration. You're better off actually getting paid between one and three, one and four years out, because when 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 things get extremely difficult, spreads will widen and the longer duration IG bonds and high yield bonds will get pretty hit pretty hard. Right. And that's just what we're cognizant of. So it's not the risk question, per se. It's a different mm -hmm. way to look at it. I think it's a duration question, um, knowing the risks that are on the horizon. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just moving on from that, um, alternative assets uh, have obviously played quite a big part in, in LGT portfolios and, and within the funds that, that you manage uh, on our behalf. With, with these levels of yields available in the fixed income space, does that alter alter the view on on how you use alternatives and you know what they need to bring to the table to uh, to justify a position in portfolios? I guess I'll I'll, I'll leave it open to, to both of you. Well, yeah, I mean it's something we debate. I'll, I'll start. Um, I think in the the portfolio itself, we you know just talking about what the alternatives that we got. We got Brevin Howard Macro, which is the investment trust. Um, you know, on balance, you know th that's probably one of the best longer term holdings. Um, that you want to hold throughout particularly difficult periods. And if you think about where we are today, valuations are compressed across fixed income and equity markets uh, relative cash yields. You are seeing interest rate volatility, FX ball, um, credit ball to pick up and equity market ball as, as we go further down the road. These guys are, you know, this firm has demonstrated their ability to, to, to actually generate alpha in that environment. So that's why they're held. We also have another Brevin Howard fund, which trades just interest rates and derivatives, um, uh, sorry, interest rates and uh, FX. Um, they've demonstrated their worth throughout the longer term as well. And the last one that we hold is gold. You know, gold, we're not in love with it. 
you know, it, it, it's sort of an insurance policy. When things go wrong, golds actually tended to behave quite well uh, during these periods. And, um, you know, gold's actually done all right for us this year, uh, notwithstanding the last month, uh, month or so. It's actually traded well. But again, we're not wedded to it, right? If it breaks down, we'll, we'll, we'll exit the position. Um, but that's all we've got. So our alternatives is a lot lower today mm. because of the exact reason that you asked before, right? And this comes back to, look, at the end of the day, you look at an alternative investment. And whether you look at their kids' kids or their prospectus or their fact sheet, their benchmark or their, their target return is typically cash plus one, cash plus two, cash plus three, right? So um, we're in a world now where cash rates are five, and these things should be delivering between, you know, let's say six and six and eight percent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all cards on the table uh, to 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 yourself and you know, it's something that we're grappling with quite, quite, you know, aggressively, not only on Blair, the MPS, uh, sorry, the WMP funds, but also as an investment committee. I don't think they necessarily delivered the bacon, so to speak, or delivered the goods year to day, right? And we've had a pretty volatile environment. Yeah, okay, SPB fiasco that we saw in March, we had a huge dislocation. Um, there was perfect opportunity for the for these managers to add alpha, and they all they all went underwater, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're really reviewing the thesis on whether we want to want to keep these things in the portfolio. Probably not get rid of them entirely, but um, probably less. You know, if we could sit on five or six percent, get five or six percent for doing nothing with limited vol whatsoever, you know, why 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 take the additional risk, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Sanjay, Sanjay, I don't know if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, just just a couple of other 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 areas. I think, Ian, you know, from our from our perspective, we keep asking ourselves what the role of alternatives is in the portfolio. You know, what benefit does it bring in a climate where you rightly alluded to the fact that we can get you know risk free rate of around five, and 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 what it brings to the portfolio is sometimes a hedge. Sometimes, if our view is wrong. Um, we're also aware that, you know, with, with a little bit of stress within the credit markets, margins will probably get compressed. We might see a little bit more, you know, uh, participation, you know, equity performance rather than just the five or six stocks that we've seen. So trying to take advantage of some of the sort of the equity long short strategies that are out there, we might be looking at those. But in the main, we have alternatives in the portfolio to 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 have a view that's contrary to ours. I mean, that's why they are there in the portfolio. And whilst the market's behaving the way we think it's behaving, and arguably if it's going up, then these strategies don't actually deliver what they should. But that's no bad thing because 90% of the portfolio is delivering what we should. But it's only in periods where, where we saw like last year, if we tomorrow we have a, a stagflationary climate, if we have a hard landing, then these plays should actually deliver results over and above the 5% that we're getting within the, within the risk-free space. Um, so the reality is, yes, it's a it's a tough climate for a lot of alternatives, uh, not because uh, they're not opportunities out there, because the benchmark is now so high. Ro, you know, mentioned the benchmark is now closer to five as opposed to when it was virtually not 18 months ago. Uh, but from our perspective, it's about ensuring that we have strategies that sometimes can represent a view very much to the contrary of what we're thinking just as a hedge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And I was going to say, just 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 to Sanjay's point, but the strategies that we're focusing on are predominantly, particularly the WMP funds. They're macro funds, 
So if you look at uh, historically, macro and uh, managed futures or trend following strategies, those are the two strategies which have had the greatest amount of alpha um, during market dislocations. So when markets actually severely fall, you know, we had a wobble in March. You know, it's, you know, if there's a prolonged downturn across um, equity markets and, you know, interest rate markets as we saw last year, these are the type of strategies that will, will do well. And the second thing I'll say is, you know, we, we look at this stuff all the time. We, we went back uh, at our longer track record going back probably eight and a half, nine years now. And the question I ask is, okay, we've got alternatives in the portfolio. They've been flat. But the key question is, when there is periods of market stress and dislocation, how do they do? Mm. Okay. So we went through all those periods over the last eight, eight and a half years or so. And actually on balance, when there was periods of market stress, what we found is that the, the alternatives actually added value and made money. Um, so yeah, on, on the headline level, it's disappointing, but as to Sanjay's point, and based on the evidence that we have, they, they, they do play a role as a shock absorber, so to speak, um, trade against our own opinion or our own view. Um, or a volatility dampener. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and something that, that Sanjay's mentioned um, a couple of times regarding the, the rally we've seen year to date being heavily dominated by a handful of stocks, I guess those, those big global tech names that perhaps struggled so much last year. How, what what are the risks for investors um, around that you know that concentration and and how can you mitigate them um, within the the funds? Yeah, yeah how um, do we mitigate within the funds? Well, we can we can we can buy tackers, right? That way we get we get the right representation. And from our perspective, even though we 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 believe in active management, you know, passive investment is a part of our active management style. So we will we will quite happily embark on. Uh, investing in various passive instruments just to ensure that we're getting the right ex market exposure. Um, mm -hmm. But in reality, um, you know, having that sort of concentration is not healthy for any market. That has to broaden out. And if you just look at the price actions over the last week or so, you'll find two things. One, we are beginning to see broaden out. I mean, yesterday was a classic example when your FANG index and those AI stocks were down around 3% and the small cap Russell 2000 was actually up. So we're now beginning to see that rally broaden. So we don't want to go out there and start chasing these stocks once we've seen once we've seen such a uh, such a strong move up. Now there must have been an element of short interest there. You know, you and I both know uh, market participants use all sorts of tools, derivative tools, and they they love lo love shorting uh, market darlings. And 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 arguably the weakness that we saw within these stocks of the last year, a lot of it has to come because some of the bigger managers went out there and shorted these stocks, thinking they are expensive, and in order to to fund their growth trajectory, they have to go and borrow more money. And if they're going to borrow more money, it's going to cost them, you know, a lot more than we thought. And as a result, you'll see margin compression. Um, but as the stocks start moving up, we're seeing a little bit of short covering, covering, covering too. Um, but we've also seen the benefits of holding on to the likes of Microsoft and stuff, which we have, we have within the portfolios that have demonstrated pricing power. So this market is also telling us that it's very happy to reward uh, and actually an attribute a premium to those businesses that can demonstrate time and time again that they're able to keep pace with inflation. So it's not just tech, 
Visa, MasterCard, these sorts of businesses that have also done well over the last uh, last few months, you'll see that uh, once once these companies are able to report the fact that their revenues are going up because they're raising the cost of their goods and services, the market is quite happy to reward them. And we've seen that in the case of Microsoft. We've seen that in the case uh, in the case of Apple. So yeah, it is a bit unhealthy to have such a, a, a rally based on five or six stocks. Um, because they can very, very soon correct uh, correct themselves. Uh, but in the main, it's not totally unjustified this rally. There's a little bit of a bit of science behind why we've seen such sharp moves. Yeah, okay. in, in, in terms of the risk mitigation, you know, with some of the what we've been doing in the fund. I mean, you know, we've been saying it for a few quarters now. You know, at the margin, we do have like the likes of Microsoft, Meta, for example. Um, MasterCard uh, and a few names, but we've been very cognizant of uh, trying to uh, been paying attention on the valuation side rather than just blindly chasing these names higher. Um, particularly now that's important given how fast these things have moved. Uh, but as also at the fund level, you know, it is pretty well diversified across um, different sectors and different sort of stocks, which They've done okay this year, but haven't really delivered the returns um, like like what we've seen from the, the top 10 stocks. And, um, you know, just con contrarian-wise, you know, everyone's thinking recession. Markets have run up pretty aggressively. I think if this rally is going to continue, and Sanjay alluded to it, um, we need to see broadening out of leadership and we've kind of seen some early signs of that in the last couple of weeks where you're getting greater and greater participation from uh, different names that's pretty healthy uh, whether that continues or not for the rest of the year um, this remains to be seen but I probably I'm akin to thinking that may happen more than what uh, people uh, expected to okay um Thank you both very much for, for the insights. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you both again soon. All best. Thanks very much, Ian. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the support. Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you found it insightful. If you would like to discuss any of these topics or your investments in more detail, please reach out on the contact details provided.